Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is critically important for healthcare professionals all the time, but also during this COVID-19 pandemic. And today we're going to be talking to researchers who have looked at how the well-being of healthcare workers has been impacted by the pandemic. And Abby, I'm really interested in this discussion today because one of the things we've touched on quite frequently in the podcast is the lack of or the perceived lack of evidence in this space. And I'm really excited to sort of see some um, concrete figures on exactly what impact the pandemic has had on healthcare and social care staff across the NHS and beyond. Mm, absolutely. I think we've heard a lot of people's personal experiences on this podcast, but I think it'll be really interesting to hear some evidence of what how the wider workforce is being affected. So I'm really pleased to introduce our two speakers who are experts in this field. I'm Danielle Lamb. I'm a senior research fellow with the NIHR ARC North Thames, which is based in the Department of Applied Health Research at UCL. And Sam, if you could introduce yourself, please. Thanks for thanks for having us, Abby and Kat. Um, I'm Sam. I'm a psychiatry trainee in South East London. Um, I'm also an academic clinical fellow um, at the IOPPL. Fantastic. Now, Danielle, I think you work on something called the NHS Check Study which is a study looking at how the pandemic has affected healthcare workers. That's not something I know anything about. So I was wondering if we could kick off by you telling us what is the NHS check study? How does it work? How did it start? All of that stuff, really. Um, So NHS check is a cohort study of mental health um, and well-being in people working in the NHS during the pandemic. So it started at the beginning of the pandemic, really. Um, The first survey, so it's online surveys that staff fill in about their mental health and well-being um, and that the first survey was sent out in uh, April of last year so 2020 uh, just a few weeks after the first lockdown had started in the UK and the survey asks people about some general demographic information about themselves some occupational questions about where they work and what they do their role and so on uh, and then it asks some uh, measures we use validated measures about well-being um, and mental health And then six months after they complete that survey, they've been invited to fill in another follow-up survey. So asking fairly similar questions, but six months on from when they first completed that. Uh, And then at 12 months, we'll be sending out another survey to people. So the people who joined the study at the very start in April are being sent out that 12-month survey about now um, and asked to complete that. Thanks, Danielle. That gives us a really clear kind of overview of how how you've undertaken this study. And um, Sam, can I ask you what what is the question that you're trying to answer? So I think the main the main question that we we set out was to um, define the problem. Um, a is is the kind of mental health and well being of healthcare workers um, is is that going to be an issue? Has that been an issue during the pandemic? And as we're kind of seeing that evolve, um, if so. In what way is it the issue? You know, what are we talking about? Are we talking about 
kind of rates of um, distress? Are we talking about rates of depression, anxiety, PTSD? Um, you know, what's, what's a characteristic of that? Um, and as Danielle mentioned, um, who is it affecting as well? Um, are we talking about people who are uh, mostly clinical, but in particular places? Are we talking about certain professions? Um, are we talking about certain places? Um, and so those kind of things is more kind of giving us a bit more depth around the problem as well. I think one of the additional bits we were looking at was um, around the staff support that people were receiving. Um, and seeing who is actually accessing them and, and trying to get a bit more depth around that as well. So it's it a bit of a kind of an expedition to try and define the problem a little bit and start touching upon the interventions as well. Have you managed to achieve the diversity of responses across the different staff groups that, that you hope for? Have you found that one group is, is more engaged in particular? So, yeah, we have uh, got a variety of different kinds of staff completing the survey. So um, we've got uh, we've crudely split our sample into doctors, nurses, other clinical staff and non-clinical staff. And we have around 30% uh, non-clinical, around 30-ish percent um, uh, other clinical, um, around 30% nurses um, and around 10% doctors. So that's how our uh, our cohort is split and that's roughly equivalent to the overall split in in nhs the, the nhs the wider nhs um in terms of job roles um and similarly in terms of um gender and ethnicity and age our cohort is roughly similar to the nation. so i guess um the, the million dollar question from someone like me who's not a researcher is what did you find and maybe we can start that and break it down a bit and think about what did you find looking at differences between staff groups? Is there a difference in the way that different groups are feeling? Yeah, really good question. And I think Danielle has much more kind of intimate understanding of the knowledge and fingertips. But I'll have a stab, Danielle, and you can um, you can correct me in all the places. But I'm a bit more lackadaisical called the truth. Um, so I think what what we found was that um, there was a difference across genders. Um, so so women, um, by and large, had um, uh, lower rate or lower kind of mental health scores on, on the measures that we used. Um, similarly, younger staff um, and those who were clinical, but um, across kind of nursing professions and some of the other clinical staff groups um, had um, higher rates of, of mental health conditions, at least or probable mental health conditions, because these are the surveys that, that Danielle mentioned. Um, so, so those groups appeared to have higher rates as compared to kind of older men um, who are doctors, for example. Um, but of course, they're quite kind of crude, um, crude and quite large groups. Um, and that was kind of true across different conditions like depression or anxiety or probable depression, probable anxiety, probable PTSD. Um, but there were some other, other things like alcohol use, for example, where you notice that um, BAME staff actually had low rates of alcohol use during, um, during the pandemic period. Um, so yes, yeah, so there, was, there was some really kind of helpful information to come out and actually a lot of that information was in line with some, some previous or previously suggested findings from previous pandemics and, and previous periods in time as well, um, which were the kind of younger, younger people, um, some people who were um, clinical but also non-clinical um, and nurses in particular, given their kind of unique role right the way through this, um, were affected. It's really interesting to hear the evidence about um, how staff have actually been affected during the pandemic and you know we set the podcast up because we knew that staff well-being was was being impacted um, and we knew that through anecdote and people sharing their experiences but to actually hear that evidence is really really powerful. Um, and then sort of to kind of move forward from that what I'm really interested in hearing about is 
um, what, is, what have you learned about how support services have helped or not helped staff during COVID-19? And what, what do we know really works and makes a difference? So we asked about the support services that people have used in the survey. So we have some quantitative data about that. But another part of the, the study is qualitative interviews. So we've been doing one-to-one qualitative interviews with 60 members of staff and we've been asking them about the support services that they've used and if they haven't used services as well. So quite often with this kind of qualitative research, we've used a service, how did you find it, was it helpful? We're actually, we're specifically looking for people who hadn't used services as well to find out why they hadn't and get a better sense of what could be put in place that would be helpful. Because we know from the quantitative data from the survey that actually not that many people were saying they'd used the kinds of formal support services that had been set up. Around a third were saying they'd used and, and, and found helpful those kinds of services. The kinds of services that people are using that are available, so there are things like employee assistance programmes, so sort of big um, trust-wide programmes, and there are national helplines and, and things like that. Those weren't very well used according to the data that we got from the survey, whereas things like relaxation areas that had been set up in hospitals for staff to go and, and just take a few minutes out from busy wards and, and, and their work, those were, were more likely to be used. Similarly, peer support so things like Schwartz rounds um, and, and uh, sort of just debriefing with your own team having a chat about how things have gone um, informal support so whatsapp groups and, and and social media that people found support from those kinds of things uh, seem to be more helpful to people um, and although we haven't finished doing the, the data collection for the qualitative interviews those kinds of themes do seem to be coming out from the interviews that we've done so far with with people not really being so likely to use the uh, employee assistance programs and, and phone lines which feel more removed and external and actually finding something a bit more perhaps individual personal to be more helpful in terms of support. Sam can probably say a lot more about this being frontline himself. <laughs> no, I think I think that's really yeah really helpful um, Danielle to hear about kind of the, where people have been using it or not using it and kind of reasons for, for all of that. Um, I guess the the only additional thing to say and kind of supplement that is um, found that um, it's often kind of the managers or your immediate supervisor who makes an incredible difference to, to your experiences. I think um, we've all kind of. Um, feel kind of day-to-day in our, in our own lives but also particularly in a clinical setting and and that kind of speaks to that informal support that, that you mentioned Danielle and um, and kind of supporting managers and supervisors to look after their staff um, including with kind of practical work-based issues like redeployment or rotors and stuff like that um, because that can kind of show people that a you care about them but also materially impacts their day-to-day. Absolutely, Absolutely. that really resonates because just this morning I've been looking at one of the transcripts from the qualitative interviews and that came out so strongly from the member of staff who'd spoken to us about how important it was to have a good supportive team who help each other and to have managers and and leadership who recognise the pressures that are on people and the practical things that they can do to help. So yeah, that's, that's really important. I was just going to ask Danielle whether, I don't know if it's able to to say at the moment, but whether there's a difference between staff groups on who access services more than others. We don't have that data analysed yet, I'm afraid. No, that's fine. Um, Anecdotally, 
it seems as though um, probably clinical staff were perhaps more likely to use the things like relaxation areas uh, and, and be involved in, in things like Schwartz Rounds and, and teams uh, talking about the impact of their clinical work than perhaps non-clinical staff were. So th- this again is, is slightly speculative, but it, it seems as though perhaps staff who aren't in those sort of close-knit clinical teams have slightly fewer opportunities to talk about the impacts that their work has had on them because that's just less usual. It's, it's not uh, so, so typical sort of culturally for you know, cleaners and porters and administrative staff to, to uh, whereas for, for clinical staff, that is a little more uh, part of the usual work. So, you know, handovers, even if you're not talking about the, the personal impact of uh, seeing a, a particular patient uh, struggling or, or in trouble, there's, there's still that um, sort of people are used to that practice of sharing information and having those group peer discussions and, and support in some way, which perhaps isn't there for the non-clinical staff. So that's something we're really interested to look at in a lot more detail and why we're really pleased that we have quite large numbers of non-clinical staff in the study as well as clinical staff. I think I think that speaks to, um, to what Danielle said, but also what you were saying Kat, earlier about the organisational culture and, and, and that side of things, because I know kind of anecdotally, again, um, so moving away from kind of hard data, um, there was kind of a lot of um, hearing about people who felt able or maybe not authorised or, or that kind of these rest and recharge hubs were for them. And, and it was often non-clinical staff because they didn't know whether they were kind of, it was created for them, you know, is it for them to use or is it for other people to use? Um, and similarly, um, again, different kind of healthcare professionals, you know, is it for the people who are in ITU? Is it, is it for them or is it for kind of the rest of the organisation? That's a really interesting point. We'll pick up on that after we've heard from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our wellbeing programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. One thing that we've talked a lot about kind of over the past year on the podcast is this issue of the kind of real spectrum of kind of severity of impact and, you know, ranging from, you know, sort of just stress and exhaustion and kind of fatigue um, and perhaps some element of distress to kind of real profound um, either burnout or, you know, profound mental health difficulties, you know, such as depression or anxiety or, you know, even PTSD. Um, Do you have much of a sense of where the kind of bulk of the sort of um, mental health um, burden lies along that spectrum or is that kind of too too difficult to, to say? 
Well, we know from the baseline survey that just over half of our cohort were experiencing symptoms of common mental disorders. So we used um, a, a very general psychological um, well-being measure called the GHQ, the General Health Questionnaire, to try and gauge that. And, uh, and around just over half of our population were showing that. But that is general psychological distress rather than disorder. And, and throughout the, the research, the whole research team has been very clear that the measures that we're using in the survey, the tick box questionnaires, they are measures of distress rather than measures of disorder. And so when we say half the population that we're looking at are experiencing mental distress, that's not to say that half of the population have a diagnosable mental health disorder. And another part of the study that we're, we're working on uh, is a, a set of individual uh, diagnostic psychiatric interviews. So again, it's one-to-one -one interviews with researchers and individual staff members. And we're interviewing around 300 people using validated clinical measures. And I know that Sam will be able to say more about this as an actual clinician. Um, and, and we're trying to, that, that will give us a sense, a much better sense, hopefully, of the actual level of disorder versus distress uh, and, and where resources might be helpfully aimed to, to really support those people who need it the most. Sam, do you want to say a bit more about the diagnostic interviews? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so I guess taking kind of PTSD as an example, I know Danielle mentioned about kind of high rates of common um, or of symptoms of kind of common mental health disorders and similarly we had quite high rates of PTSD I think just under a third of our people had on the kind of again self-completed questionnaires and um, probable scores of, of PTSD and, and so one of the things that I think we were quite interested in doing as Danielle mentioned was to interview people and um, both who had high scores um, and both people who had kind of lower scores or experienced trauma and so forth and um, to see whether that corresponded to a diagnosis um, and I guess the kind of the 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 conclusion is watch the space, but but basically there is a discrepancy. Um, and so there is kind of that need to be careful um, with kind of all studies and including kind of our findings of kind of top line findings from surveys to say that actually these kind of high numbers that we're finding, um, they certainly capture distress and, and that might represent a couple of things. That might represent kind of distress at that time that was happening and then has since subsided with, with things kind of opening up or further social support and so forth or lack of social support for some people. Um, or it might be the case that, you know, these were really distressing times, but didn't quite meet the threshold for um, for diagnostic support. And that obviously has an incredible kind of difference in terms of the kind of support then that you want to offer. Um, do you need to offer kind of formal PTSD structures, for example, for, for lots of staff members? Or is it more that kind of informal supportive kind of culture around kind of work-based challenges and, and all the different things that Danielle kindly outlined and um, that you'd want to work on? Um, so I think those are the kind of questions that we are quite... Um, quite interested in and invested in finding out just to add to that sorry I was just going to add um, we haven't finished the diagnostic interview study yet but from the initial findings it does look as though the levels of diagnosable PTSD are nearly a third indicated by the survey that said even low levels of diagnosable PTSD, even if it's around sort of seven, eight percent of our sample who are actually at that uh, diagnosable level, um, that's still large numbers when you think about the whole population of NHS staff. So that's not to underplay the importance of this. And it's also not to underplay the importance of the fact that people experiencing distress are also going to be 
possibly struggling at work. It's great you've done the survey. The findings are really interesting. You know, you found that there is a certain level of mental distress and also you found that certain interventions have worked better than others. What are you going to do with these findings to make sure that staff are better looked after in the future and actually trusts across England make the most of what you found and actually implement things to improve things for staff? Good question. (laughs) So yeah, I'll I'll have a first start, Danielle, and you can um, certainly, yeah, just just jump in for for all the colourful bits that I I missed out. Um, So I think, I I guess the first kind of bit is... um, continue to kind of map map this out and, and kind of supplement it by those qualitative interviews that we said to really kind of get to the heart of kind of defining the problem and defining the different tiers of the problem. So kind of number of people with distress, number of people with probable disorder and kind of clinically diagnosable disorder. So then we can make a strong pitch about um, where we or kind of make a really strong claim about where we think the problem lies for the best probability. Um, again, recognising the kind of biases or kind of shortcomings that we have with response rates and um, to kind of making a um, a reasonably confident assertion of, of what we think the problem is, which I think at the moment, at least, we we certainly don't feel confident that we can do um, in this current second. And that's why we're trying to do all the different parts. So I think that's the kind of first bit. Um, but I think the second bit is um, kind of using those kind of 18 trust links that Danielle mentioned um, and doing that kind of trust level engagement with stakeholders and feeding back to the individual kind of boards, feeding back to the individual departments within, within those organisations. Um, and I guess that's kind of one of the... I think the strengths and the benefits of having worked with those organisations, with recruiting people through their own kind of chief executive network, through their own departments, with their own kind of champions in those different organisations, is that they are kind of very much aware of this happening. They're very much contributed to it. Um, and the joint kind of reason for us doing this was to define the problem a bit more and to also do something about it. So they've been really keen to find out, you know, what have we found out? And for example, early on, we had some intelligence around kind of PPE in particular organisations and so forth. So that was fed back to the organisations uh, and that allowed for some kind of local intelligence. So it's kind of allowing for that local intelligence to happen across those 18 trusts. But of course, I think we'd ideally want to move beyond just those 18 trusts and see whether there can be lessons learned uh, more broadly. Um, I know the team have been kind of in discussion with different groups like NHS England and improvements, but also the kind of parliamentary office for science and technology, feeding into some of their reviews that have been happening um, and and also kind of continuing to um, engage with the people who kindly volunteer their time to take part in the surveys as well. So we've been kind of doing a few webinars for them to kind of keep them informed about what we've been finding um, kind of trying to test the validity with them because they... Um, certainly know the, the space much much more kind of clearly than than us um, and then trying to come up with some solutions and part of that has been um, doing a couple of um, policy think tanks and um, where we've been inviting a range of different stakeholders and um, people from our team but also people from a range of different organizations who've been working and, and, and care about the space and NHS Confederation, Health Foundation and so forth and um, to help kind of think through how we can apply this into both meaningful kind of policy stuff, but also into kind of staff support um, measures and, and applications as well. Um, so I guess it's still quite um, ill-defined, but I think it's kind of work in progress and we're hoping to um, feed in both kind of locally through the trust, but also through some of the more kind of national and policy networks as well. So I suppose one thing to add is that Obviously, as researchers, uh, we're going to say more research is needed. Um, but I think what one area where research 
possibly is really is needed is about the interventions and and you know we've talked about these qualitative interviews that we're doing with people and that's brilliant for getting information from people really detailed in-depth sense of what helps and why and how and perhaps why people don't use interventions that are there uh, but I think there are there's still massive scope for doing research about interventions and the different types of interventions it's worth saying that although obviously our study is looking specifically at well-being during the pandemic actually these issues are not new these issues were there well before the pandemic and staff retention and continuity of care all of those things were there before the pandemic so i think that's quite important to keep in mind and and as you said you know services that were put in place to support people now perhaps being taken away because the pandemic is being seen as over perhaps <laughs> whereas actually these things need to be investigated and researched more because of the legacy uh, of issues with well-being and and the impact that has on staff retention and continuity of care for patients um, and, and the, the organisational knowledge that is lost when staff leave because they just have had enough and feel burnt out um, that those things are, are all of many years uh, so yeah that's a really important point I think to get across. Mm. I completely agree with what you both said I think you know from the work that Kat and I have done having looked at staff well-being pre-pandemic to now sometimes you just kind of want to hold your head in your hands and think it shouldn't have taken a pandemic for things like hot food at night to be available to staff or a place where people can rest because they've had like this all should have existed before and it absolutely should continue to exist afterwards I guess from hearing you guys speak what was seem worrying to me was and correct me if I'm wrong Danielle but I think you said only about 30% of the people that you've heard from actually accessed the services so my worry would be well what's happening to that other 60% of people who, I mean, I would assume feel like they don't have the time in their day to even access those services and, and how are they doing? That's a, a, a very a strong theme that is coming out of the qualitative interviews that we've been doing is that people know that there are these different support services there, but one of the biggest barriers is is that there just isn't time. And you're, when you're so pushed for, and, and you know, you've got colleagues who are, off sick and there are there are masses of um uh, you know unfilled roles already from pre-pandemic actually how do you find the time to go and spend half an hour sitting in a relaxation area that's that's you know that's a problem um, that we need to think about um, but then equally the sort of heartening thing for me is you know hearing about what interventions are are being used and taken up and you know they're not it's not massive complex nationally funded 24 7 phone lines from what you've said you know they are kind of more simple um in inverted commas because it's not simple to kind of create a culture and the time and the capacity to use them um but they do they do feel achievable um for organizations so i think again sort of a real you know, I, I, we always like to say more research, as you said, Danielle, but, you know, focus on how, how you can implement those practically within an organisation um, and how you can really kind of um, 
work on the cultural side of things to make it kind of not only acceptable but really kind of a priority for staff to use those spaces and and to recognize that the more they look after their own well-being you know the better the service they'll provide to patients the better the organization will function the safer the organization will be and and for everyone to kind of share that vision about you know the importance of staff well-being backed up by by this evidence absolutely and i think that point about people looking after the, their own well-being is important, but it's also really important not to put too much responsibility on individuals. This is a cultural, systemic issue, and offering staff, you know, resilience hours or, or that kind of thing doesn't seem to be going over that well. So the staff that we've talked to, really quite a lot of them are quite resistant to that kind of narrative, that it's up to you to you know, do your <clears throat> half an hour of mindfulness. And if you haven't done that, then it's your fault if you burn out. That's not helpful to staff, I think. So it's really important to, to, uh, to have that balance of the cultural and organisational side of things and what can be done there to support staff as much as it is that it is important for people obviously to to take time for themselves and to um to you know focus on their own well-being but that needs to be enabled by the wider culture and the wider organisations who have the uh, the opportunity the, the capability of putting things in place so that staff are able to focus on yeah. their own and, and i think kind of that that pitch that you were saying danielle about moving from individual resilience to kind of system resilience, I think is really, really important. And similarly, thinking about well-being, as we all have often the metrics that we use to measure it, whether it's kind of staff support survey or even in, in some of our bits of our survey, is very much kind of looking for when things go bad, you know, how, you know, the problem end of it, um, rather than looking at kind of positive aspects of well-being and trying to measure, you know, how well people are doing and, and that aspect as well. And I, and I guess it's kind of trying to capture all ends of that spectrum and trying to maximise that positive end as well, um, rather than just kind of stopping the more difficult aspects of it. Well, Kat, I thought that was a really interesting discussion. And as we said before we started, we were keen to hear what evidence there was about how healthcare staff have been affected. I think that's given us um, quite a lot to think about. One of the things that I thought was particularly interesting was the fact that they found that only about a third of staff have been accessing wellbeing services. I mean, those who have are clinical staff, but I think that still means there are a lot of people who aren't accessing those services. Um, and I know we discussed a bit um, with Sam and da- um, Danielle why that might be, but it still seems quite shocking to me that so many people might not be using these services when they might need them. Absolutely, Abby. And, and I think the real concern for me is that um, because the uptake isn't that high, there might be a perception that these services aren't needed or aren't useful. Um, but then if I I think and reflect on the sort of statistics that, that Danielle and Sam shared around, you know, up to 50% of the NHS w- workforce are experiencing mental distress, you know, but obviously there's a significant proportion of those people who aren't accessing these things that have been put in place to help them. Um, then it feels to me like the discussion should be much more centred around, you know, how can we make these services more accessible um, encourage people to use them, do that sort of that culture of um, prioritising well-being and giving people permission to put this at the centre of their their working lives rather than some kind of, um, you know, optional add-on. Mm. I guess 
it's even more important at a time where I think we're going to see an even greater increase in NHS staff workload due to the backlog that's been created by the pandemic and people are going to feel under even more pressure and like they've got less time for these what might feel like optional extras but are actually kind of essential things to keep them going in their work. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we've heard anecdotally already, you know, of, um, of GP practices that always prioritise having a coffee together kind of mid-morning, you know, already those practices are being edged out. Um, however, I think, you know, the really clear message from, from this research is that, you know, small interventions really make a big difference. You know, having those rest spaces, having those spaces to connect and those, you know, really quite quite small chunks of time carved out of the day to, to prioritise resting and, and recuperating. Um, you know, that, that stuff really does work. And it's really, I'm really glad that, you know, people and organisations will have that evidence to, to make those cases and, and to argue um, for those things to be put in place. Absolutely. And I know, as we've said on this podcast before, I do really hope that any of those things that have been introduced during the pandemic will will stay post, post-pandemic if post-pandemic is ever, ever a thing. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks ever so much to our guests, Sam and Danielle, for coming on the podcast. And you can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or please join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. As ever, we'd always like to hear your ideas for what we might cover in future. Until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye.